Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any host or guest's individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening and welcome to the Bright Not Broken radio show on the Coffee Clatch. We are so excited to be here tonight. We've got a couple of very special guests for you. I'm Diane Kennedy, co-host along with Rebecca Banks, my co-host and co-author of Bright Not Broken. And tonight we are talking to Dr. Linda Silverman. Linda has been with us before, Dr. Silverman, on the show a couple of times. And we're so thrilled to have with her tonight Bob. Gilman, who is the um, Associate Director of the Gifted Development Center. We're going to be talking tonight about assessing gifts and challenges in the whole child, seeing twice exceptionality through the lens of development and asynchrony, understanding the implications for gifted children at home, in school, and across the lifespan. These are the experts. These are the experts with a capital T, I'm telling you, and we're so excited to have them tonight. Quality assessment is essential for the gifted child, and it can determine both the educational needs and the right options to appropriately challenge but not overwhelm the child. It must be done with precision, with the needs of the gifted in mind. And the Gifted Development Center testers, such as the two wonderful women we have on tonight, have been working together for many years with this particular population, and they've been able to hone their skills to the level of leading the field in gifted assessment, which is exactly why we brought them here tonight. So I'd like to welcome you to the show. Welcome, Dr. Silverman, Linda, and Bobby. Hi, this is Linda. And this is Bobby. We're so pleased to be invited and to talk with you. We um, are so excited to have you as well, and I know this is a topic, uh, Becky, I'm sure you can speak to how important this topic is tonight as far as education. That's going to be our second, our second piece um, that we talk about after we cover comprehensive assessment. Oh, absolutely. And in terms of, of this segment, assessments, getting an accurate, comprehensive assessment that is read in a way that you understand what's going on with the child is so important. So with that, um, ladies, um, Dr. Silverman and Bobby, do you want me? I'm so sorry. But um, anyhow, I know you all as Linda and Bobby, so if it comes out, please don't think I'm being informal. But, no, uh, I like being called Linda. Awesome. We do. I'm technically Barbara, but everyone knows me as Bobby, too. Okay, great. Okay. Great. Well, we hear often that... Um, 
QE children are often overlooked, and, and I know I see that in my classroom, and I get so frustrated because I see needs, but because the needs remain unidentified according to the standards that are set by, by my state and uh, the guidelines that are given, um, they're so often overlooked. But why they're often looked is taken for, overlooked for granted. You all stated um, that instead of uh, asking if someone is uh, gifted or disabled, you said we should be asking questions like, what signs of giftedness are we overlooking? Or what role can giftedness play in obscuring real disabilities? Can you all take some time to explain the profile of the 2E student and the social, emotional performance and behavioral issues that often lead them to being missed? Well, I'd like to start with just uh, our most recent case. We had okay. a child who did not look gifted. When tested, the child tested 175 IQ, but oh. did not look gifted at all in the classroom, was really overlooked. Um, a lot of children who have giftedness and some other issue that's getting in their way cannot perform in the classroom at anywhere near the level that they're capable of. And that's the kind of child that we, that Bobby and I get to work with just about every week. So what, what will almost be the clue that might spark an assessment for them to come to you? Will it be the parent a lot of times saying, look, I know my child's so much more capable, or will it be a teacher, or is it both? Um, I think it's usually parents, and parents are very good judges of when something's wrong and also if a child is bright. And so many of the parents that we see tell us that they've shared a concern with their child's teacher and the teacher doesn't see it. Um, usually the teacher doesn't see the giftedness either. And parents are told not to worry, their child is fine, their child is average, they're at grade level. But something about the situation doesn't seem right to the parents. Um, if they have another child at home, um, they see that this child seems as bright in many ways, but struggles much more than their other child, or struggled more than the parents did as children. So the parents are excellent judges of when to check something out. I think some of the symptoms that we would be able to pick up on teachers as well as parents would be the child's curiosity, the child's interests, the child's vocabulary, um, coming up with out-of-the-box and mature ideas for problem-solving in the classroom or at home. And as far as I'm concerned, when we see a child who's really emotionally tuned in, that's often a sign of giftedness, a child who seems to be able to take another person's perspective. That perspective-taking can be a sign of giftedness. And I know that there are some gifted children who are twice exceptional, who lack that ability, who, who have some social issues as well. 
but there are lots and lots of signs of giftedness that don't have anything to do with the child's performance in school. It's the questions they ask and the way they relate to information, and sometimes it's their amazing memory of things that happened three years ago, or their visual spatial abilities when they say to their mother from the back seat, you're going the wrong way. (laughs) (laughs) It's also the child that Linda calls the conundrum kid, the child who, you know, shows these opposing characteristics, you know, is very bright and engaging in a conversation but can't put thoughts down on paper, Um, you know, the child who, you know, just doesn't fit, doesn't fit the typical mold. So we, we have to understand two different specializations to really get a twice exceptional child. Number one, you must understand the signs of giftedness. Without recognizing what the characteristics of gifted children are, you're not going to be able to see them. I think it's perhaps easier for parents than it is for teachers because where you have one child in the family who's gifted, usually you have a whole family of gifted children and you see that they play well together, that their vocabularies are similar, that maybe one might develop reading ability faster, but another might be greater at Legos, but they are able to create fantasy worlds together, and they really have um, parallel conversations where they can talk with each other at very deep levels that they may not be able to talk with other people outside the family. So the parents are confused because they see that they're raising children that are very similar in ability, and yet one goes to school and does fine, and the other one is struggling and just perceived as average. And this is confusing to the parent, whereas the teacher is comparing this child's performance only in school-based subjects in a group situation with other average children and saying, well, you're expecting too much. Your child's just like everybody else. I'm so glad you brought up that that point, Linda. What you're saying is that achievement is not always measured the same, and that is not necessarily a sign of giftedness or a lack of. Am I right? Absolutely. We find that only 50% of the the children in the studies that I've looked at are advanced in reading, are early readers. And that means that 50% of gifted children are not early readers. So if you're looking at early reading as the only way you can find a gifted child, you're going to be overlooking the Lego kid. You're going to be overlooking the builder. You're going to be overlooking children who show their abilities in other ways, but they've got dyslexia or stealth dyslexia. A lot of children are even wonderful readers, but can't write. And if in school you're judged by how gifted you are, by how much you write, how well you write, how comfortable you are writing, children with dysgraphia are not going to pass that achievement test. 
writing is going to be a, a cause of concern for them. And I don't know if this is the time to mention, if I'm getting ahead of myself, let me know, Becky, because I tend to, to speak a little um, backwards sometimes, dyslexic speaking, if that is a word, but um, <laughs> if that's a term. But my question is this, what about the intensities as far as the characteristic of seeing giftedness from an early age? Um, and a lot of times I think some of us who have twice exceptional kids can testify, I certainly can, that I saw how advanced my son was in his thinking when he was 18 months old and two years old with the questions and the sentences that he could put together. But the intensity also started about that age with the behavior. His behavior was as intense as was his early development. Can you talk about that as far as recognizing a characteristic? Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up, Diane. Uh, when we've talked to parents, they often tell us that even before the child could talk, they recognize intensity in their reactions. So we've mm -hmm. had parents describe intensity in newborns, intensity mm -hmm. in three-month-olds, intensity in six-month-olds, and they, they have uh, intense, some of them have intense reactions to wet diapers, others to when uh, they see a parent who's upset, they get upset, or some of them are, uh, are intense in other ways. So the, the intensities or overexcitabilities, as, as we call them, uh, that's one of the things that we're measuring when a child comes in for testing for giftedness at the Gifted Development Center. The parents fill out an overexcitability inventory, and the five overexcitabilities that we're looking for are the intellectual, that, that curiosity, love of learning, love of theories, emotional, which has now become two different sets. One is emotional sensitivity and the other is empathy. And imagination is a third one. And a fourth one is sensual, how they, how they respond to the tags and how they respond to sunsets and to beautiful music and uh, textures. And then the fifth one is psychomotor, how they physically respond and how... Um, how they enjoy movement. And we call these children busy children. And we, we uh, distinguish them from hyperactive children who have other things going on that make it difficult for them to control their activity level. The busy children are just born to be busy, to move, to be active. And so that's psychomotor overexcitability. And all of these intensities often show up early in life. That's an excellent description, especially being able to sort out and to look at um, that we may be overlooking a gifted child when if we simply were to just look at a psychomotor overactivity, it'd be easy to stop short, call it hyperactivity, ADHD, and not look any deeper. Which, we're which called me. all the time to differentiate between active children who have great psychomotor overexcitability 
and hyperactive children who have difficulty with impulse control. Right. Let me ask you something that is is on this subject, but it's also bringing in a little different angle, and that has to do with um, socioeconomic differences and um, perhaps even cultural differences and the perception of overexcitabilities in the classroom, will that tend to lead to an assessment for giftedness or for disability? Do you think if a, if a student, um, let's say, because I teach in, in a school that is, is decidedly, at, I have a high at-risk population, um, we have a lot of different ethnicities and races who are represented in our school. Yet when I speak out and say, I really think we need to look for giftedness in this student, a lot of times what will happen is, um, first of all, they look at me askance and askew, and then the second thing is it, it tends to wind up in more in the realm of disabilities. Even They don't get the assessment. They get referred for interventions, either behavioral or, or, or uh, I'm so sorry, educational. But anyway, long story short, I guess my question is, do you all see a difference in terms of which, um, when the referrals happen, do they tend to kind of shake out? Do you think one culture, one one income level um, is, is misidentified as disabled, is having a disability? Um, and you, do you understand, is there equity in the system, do you think, or not? Well, I don't think giftedness is um, easily recognized in low socioeconomic groups. Right. Uh, Rita Dickinson, who was uh, the person who founded the Colorado Association for Gifted and Talented, was a school psychologist in the Denver Public Schools, and she worked with a lot of low socioeconomic at-risk kids within the Denver schools. And the, the kids that were referred to her for assessment were usually kids who were acting out, who had behavior problems, who uh, the teachers were concerned with their behavior. And mm -hmm. then she discovered that they were gifted. And her finding, this was many, many, many years ago, but I'll bet if we did another study with a similar population, we'd find the same results that she did. She said that in low socioeconomic groups, that the parents did not recognize the signs of giftedness in their children very mm -hmm. frequently, and they did not advocate for them at school. And so they tended to be overlooked. And if she hadn't found them in, but because they were referred for some other purpose, no one would have ever known that these kids were gifted, whereas in the higher socioeconomic groups, the parents are more likely to be tuned in to each other through Internet groups, through exposure to the concepts online of what giftedness is all about, and they just have more access to the information that would enable them to discover the child's giftedness on their own. But Rita Dickinson said that 50% 50% of the children that she identified as gifted were never seen as gifted or recognized as gifted by their parents. Wow. 
And it's really hard unless a student or a child has someone advocating for them. We know the state of giftedness and how little attention it gets in terms of our education system anyway. And to have no one advocating for, for you to be identified or recognized makes it an even more impossible situation for a child. And that's that's what I was getting at. It's, if it's hard to recognize giftedness in families that are aware, how much harder it is for families who are unaware. And um, and that's a situation I think we're wasting so many resources, so many vital, vital individuals that are missed and just bowled over or medicated um, given a diagnosis. Because I see the uh, several labels that come down the pike and students are medicated for them very quickly. And um, these are behavioral signs also that could indicate giftedness. And so I just was curious about that. Also, another problem that is a result of this problem that you've identified. Since lower socioeconomic families are not paying attention to the signs of giftedness, they're basically just trying to survive. Survive, right. Uh, it's the upper economic echelon that bring their children to testing. That leads academics to believe that, or, or uninformed academics, I should say, to believe that giftedness is simply some kind of a socioeconomic ploy rather than a reality, that there really are children with different needs. And yeah. it has to do with them trying to be egalitarian and trying mm -hmm. to take all socioeconomic groups' needs into account in the way they think. And so for them, gifted children are way too skewed in the upper socioeconomic groups. The problem is even worsened by the new uh, legislation which keeps gifted kids from ever being assessed in schools and even many learning disabled children are not getting comprehensive assessment at school. At one time, if you thought that the child was having a difficult time reading or you thought that the child was having a difficult time writing or doing math, you could send that child to the school psychologist and the school psychologist would discover that the child is really gifted. But that doesn't happen anymore. And Bobby can speak to that. It doesn't, that comprehensive assessment piece that Rita Dickinson did that used to find these children is gone. And it's not helped much by the fact that the testing that teachers do have access to is intelligent screeners, um, you know, which are brief. Uh, there's much less detail to them. They usually will miss twice exceptional kids because the weaknesses will pull their scores down too much. Um, so, you know, they, teachers don't have the advantage of even, you know, the gifted screener working to find these kids. And, of course, the disabilities are not well addressed either for a lack of comprehensive assessment. I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up because that... Mm -hmm. 
something I wanted to get to here that um and and of course what we just touched on the tip of here is about the educational system and and the needs um not getting met because of how things have been redistributed which we're going to cover in great depth in our in our second part of this conversation um but when you just talked about the twice exceptional kids and i know i can speak from experience and and becky's been through this too not just in the classroom but these were our own kids which led us to this work in the first place was um my son who had an extremely high iq but struggled so much with his social issues which sort of took him out of the the realm of things and then he got behind in his work and he didn't understand what was going on by the time we got to an assessment with the school team with a with a um school psychologist they um they almost looked at me like i was crazy when i told them his IQ was high and he's gifted. They said that's impossible, but what was happening was what you're describing. One was pulling the other one down. One was masking the other. And so tell us, give us, um, let's go to a perfect world here, which the Gifted Development Center is compared to what you're going to get in school. <laughs> give us the the pieces of a comprehensive, walk us through a comprehensive assessment, what it is and how it better serves to e-students than a more um, focused or, unfortunately, a lack of an assessment altogether. Okay, when we're talking about comprehensive assessment, we typically start with a good individual intelligence test, like a Wexler. Um, these tests have multiple parts, multiple subtests. They give you a number of scores. You have a profile of scores to look at, and they typically will assess primarily reasoning ability, which is uh, essential to intelligence, and you'll look at verbal reasoning and visual reasoning, but they also add processing skills, things like working memory, short-term memory, and processing speed on paper and pencil tasks. And so this measure in itself is quite diagnostic because children with High reasoning ability and disabilities usually show a profile of peaks and valleys. So you see lower processing skills and higher reasoning. And so that's your beginning piece. Um, when you have a child you're considering for a learning disability, you have to do achievement testing. So you look at reading, writing, spelling, math, and you look at, at it in different ways, and you look at it timed, and you see what happens. Um, if you're exploring reading, you ask children to read nonsense words as well. And writing, you might add editing. But again, you're doing a lot of controlled sleuthing to explore how children do in various aspects of achievement. Um, then you would add any other assessments in areas that you suspect might be problematic. So if it's social issues, you would want measures of empathy. Um, if it's uh, ADHD, you might be looking at executive functioning, and so on. But you want to look at each possible area of disability. One thing we've certainly learned, especially since 
federal laws have changed, and so many of these children have been missed in schools and are coming to us, is that few children have only a single disability. We've Mm -hmm. learned that if you have subtle dyslexia and you're gifted, it's very likely that you have processing skills problems, that you have sensory processing disorder and possibly auditory processing disorder and maybe visual as well. Your ears aren't working ideally together. Your eyes aren't working well together. Um, You may have fine or gross motor coordination problems. Um, You may hear things too well and be upset by loud sounds or bright lights. So the problem of targeted assessment is how do you choose and who chooses? And if a parent is asked, for example, they're going to say, well, I'm a little bit worried about reading, maybe. Um, And you may miss other things. You know, what, what we find with these kids is that when they have these combinations of disabilities, any place where you can do an intervention and provide help eases the total challenge of the child. So it's really worth looking at and doing. Schools don't respond to all of those things I mentioned. You know, they've, they've been getting more involved with sensory issues, with wiggle seats and such, uh, but not so much with auditory processing or visual processing. But you have to look more broadly to understand the disability. We also collect a great deal of qualitative information about each child, and we do qualitative observations of the child during the testing. On a group measure, which is what you're most likely to get in school, no one is observing the child. And uh, it's it's visual, it's timed. A child is having to perform within a group. And when you're doing an individual assessment with someone who knows what to look for, the tester is looking for the signs of giftedness. That's a a whole different attitude, looking for the signs of giftedness in the child's conversation, in the child's approach to the task. We give an eight-page questionnaire that just asks for all kinds of developmental history and family history, and what are the parents' observations, what are the early indications of ability in this child? What are the anecdotes that the parents can share with us? And we are also looking at the child's self-concept and personality and learning style. Um, but we're, we're trying to look at the child from as many different angles as possible to get a full picture of Where are these child's strengths? Where are the weaknesses? And how much do the strengths differ from the weaknesses? And I would add that for the weaknesses, what the parents experience and tell us about their child's struggle is invaluable as well. You know, the child who may not be showing any problem at school as far as performance assessments 
maybe taking three times as long to do homework, maybe under the table crying every night. The parent may have to provide undue support just to help that child stay up with the class. The child may be experiencing school phobia and somatic complaints, headaches or stomach aches, and doesn't want to go to school. And those are really important indicators as well. What we've learned is that the most important thing an educator can do is take the parents seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent point. And something I I would like you to address too, just especially for our listeners, because we've got everyone from preschool kids here where parents are noticing a concern all the way through adulthood. But tell us, in the early stages, when is it good to get this comprehensive assessment? What age can you really be able to measure these sorts of things? Can you talk about the age of development a little bit? We see an awful lot of children of six or seven uh, or eight, sometimes, you know, even younger. Um, when we're looking at disabilities, they're usually school age and some problems have already been noted, so they're a bit older. Um, but, you know, we will test children from ages four and a half on if they're testable, and we define that as being comfortable with you know, sitting down at a table with a tester and doing a number of activities and new activities, new activities, inherently challenging activities, um, and taking a break once in a while and coming out and seeing mom or dad and playing a bit and going back in and you know being able to do this and be comfortable with it. Um, I, but I would say clearly most of our children are maybe six, seven, um, and those ages are ages when we're often beginning to see, you know, problems in school, unexpected, you know, issues um, that parents are, are wanting to know more about. That's both and the mean and the mode of our population according to the research that we've done on our population. But part of it is because we feel more comfortable diagnosing children when they're six than when they're five. Uh, The tests are a little bit crisper for six-year-olds. And we're not excited about testing children who are 13, 14, 15, or 16 because they're too close to the ceiling of the whisk and that's going to lower their scores. So we, we like to test kids who are 16 and adults on the Wexler adult individual scale, but that teenage time gets a little bit more dicey. Well, it does, but, you know, we're quick to make exceptions as well. If a child really needs assessment because the school doesn't understand what's going on with him or her, then, oh, we absolutely will test them if they're 13 or 14 or 15. Um, It's a little bit harder to assess the full range of giftedness because they are closer to ceilings, but it can be very much worth doing. Diagnostically for the learning disability, yes. Right. So for learning disabilities, I'm not sure it's a good idea to bring them to us before the age of six. What do you think, Bobby? 
Well, you're not really seeing much to go on yet, typically. Um, you know, usually we, we see those children uh, later in first grade or second grade and parents are, are thinking, you know, things are just not progressing as we expected. You know, I think I'm I'm listening to you and I'm going back. My son is now 23, but I'm remembering the first series of tests were at four and a half. And that's when we really, thank goodness, I guess now I look at it and I think for so many years ago how fortunate I was to have somebody who did see that um, that he was advanced and who really picked up on the giftedness in his Wexler scale um, was was what amazed him the most. However, that being said, you're dead on the target here because it wasn't until about six or seven, I think, where we really began to see the disability come out and impact what we thought was just going to be a typically developing, um, um, I guess, advanced track, because that's when it really started to hold him back. That's when I it really believe started that we can see. see giftedness in the earliest stages of life. There was mm-hmm. one study, the Fullerton study, that showed that Gifted children started to develop differently in a measurable way at 18 months, and that, that those differences that parents observed at 18 months held up over the lifespan. And when right. they were tested later and later and later, they came out advanced at 8 and advanced at uh, 15. So. You know, you don't have to necessarily have testing to determine giftedness. You do have to have testing if you're going to try to get a child qualified for special provisions or if you're trying to establish that the child is gifted and learning disabled. And well, that and brings us. Go, sorry, go ahead, go Becky. Ahead. I was going to say, um, ask our, our final question here, which I've been dying to get to with Linda, but you ask her, and um, and then that will that will wrap up our session. But we've got right. a few minutes, so please do. Right, and and the question it really is is that um, you said instead of saying gifted or most children would be better served if we begin thinking gifted and and. Um, Within the gifted community, we know there's a struggle about giftedness being misdiagnosed often as ADHD or some other disorder. And as a result, parents will often stop short of a comprehensive assessment and embrace the gifted label. What are the risks for the twice exceptional child when only the giftedness is recognized and the disability is is kind of ignored? I believe that there are critical periods for intervention. And uh, one of them is for sensory processing disorder. Another one is for auditory processing disorder. Mm -hmm. The earlier you find any disability, the earlier you get it evaluated and you get it treated, the greater the prognosis is for optimal development of that child. And by calling everything just giftedness or just visual spatial ability or just overexcitability, it, it means that parents of children who really do need the comprehensive assessment 
and need to get those interventions just say, oh, the school doesn't understand my child, and my child's just being misunderstood. It mm -hmm. is true that there are a lot of people who jump on the ADHD bandwagon because it's about the only thing that the, the schools hear about. The schools, the teachers are not educated to know what central auditory processing disorder or visual processing weaknesses or sensory processing disorder, what those look like. And it's, they're easily misunderstood and misdiagnosis can take place in lots of different directions. But I would like to end the debate, really, of is it giftedness or something else and say, these are the signs of giftedness. If your child has these signs of giftedness, your child is probably gifted. But if they're also showing some signs that, that you see online or in some other resource as a possible spectrum issue or ADHD issue or auditory or visual or sensory processing or dyslexia or stealth dyslexia, any of those issues, you want to get a full assessment and see if that child would be helped by certain types of interventions or accommodations in the classroom. And by just calling it gifted or calling it some nice label, you might keep your child from getting necessary accommodations. Also, Linda, let me ask you this, because I know um, I've seen, and we know that gifted children can be stubborn and can be, when, especially when they're in their area of interest, um, they can even be um, bossy, if you will, to you know, use a more negative term. But I've seen moodiness and mood swings listed as, as a, as a characteristic of giftedness, which kind of surprised me because I wouldn't think of mood swings as being a characteristic of a gifted child typically. It is not. Uh, stubbornness by itself is not, it's never been listed in any list of characteristics of giftedness per se, except mm -hmm. ones that are trying to show that all these things are being pathologized. Uh, like late reading, for example. No, that late reading is not a characteristic of giftedness. While only 50% of gifted children are, um, are early readers, if a child is not reading at the same time uh, developmentally as other children in the family, you better find out why. If mm -hmm. you have a late talker, you better get that kid to an audiologist instead of saying, oh, well, that's just a sign of giftedness. No, it's not. <laughs> Early talking is more of a sign of giftedness than late talking. That doesn't mean there aren't some gifted children who are late talkers, but you sure want to rule out whether that child has an auditory issue because the earlier you catch it, the better that child's chances are of overcoming the issues. Excellent so, answer. In essence, parents should be on the lookout for what their instincts tell them is giftedness early on. Um, out of the box thinking, creative solutions, um, you know, awareness, but taking a checklist. Um, no, parents, what I'm hearing you say is parents need to listen to their guts sometimes. 
all the yeah, time. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think, I guess, Linda, too, one of the things you had told us early on about the, the some of the ways you can summarize gifted were the three characteristics, intensity, perfectionism, right. and sensitivity. And perfectionism certainly could be um, a precursor to what we're calling stubbornness. <laughs> when, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think people would call me stubborn over that. But you know, <laughs> too, because I know she has very me and strong convictions definitely. and she's idealistic and she has a high sense of integrity. And those are signs of giftedness, too, that be, could be called stubborn, but I don't think that that's the right term for them. No. Right, right, absolutely. But mood issues are not typical of gifted children. So when we're talking about those things, no. It's important to sort to sort them out or to or to add them rather than to sort them out, I guess. I, I'm understanding what you're saying. It's not it's not what you want to do is to say, Well, that's not a sign of giftedness and then you switch and all of the focus becomes on the disability then or the the mood issue if that's what it is and then now you've let go of the piece that needs to still be nurtured and explained and understood in the gifted piece. So you're saying when you recognize that, no, that's not necessarily a piece of giftedness, but it certainly is something worthy of, of getting some attention for. In Absolutely. Addition. We have to rule out issues. When we see a child who is rigid, rigid in thinking, which could be called stubborn too, that's not a sign of giftedness. Gifted children tend to be more flexible. When we see rigidity, we're looking at something else that needs to be explored. Okay. Right. Absolutely. Ladies, we've come to the end of our time for this section, but I'm, this is been just a fantastic discussion. There is nobody better to explain <laughs> Thank it. Thank you. And the, the Gifted Development Center in Denver um, is exactly what um, what is needed. We wish that there was one in, in every state. We could recommend someone too. So uh, we're going to continue to offer resources about your center, about your information, and we're looking forward to our next uh, section of this conversation where we're going to cover RTI, Common Core, education. Uh, we look forward to that. And we will be um, seeing you in um, just a little bit for part two. Thank you, ladies. Thank you so much for joining us. Bye. Thank you. Bye.